Good morning. I don't see anybody here I don't know, but in case you don't know me, my name is Dave, a ruling elder here at Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church, and I welcome you uh, this morning to Sunday School. Welcome anybody who's uh, listening online. Let's um, uh, open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, gather together as the people of God to learn more about you, learn more about communicating with you, uh, learn what you desire uh, to hear from us, and learn how our hearts should desire uh, to hear back from you. We uh, pray that you would open our hearts this morning, open our minds to uh, your word and, and uh, uh, your guidance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, a um, couple of things. One is um, when I began to, to prep for this earlier this week, uh, I, I intended to have, uh, you know, a, a, not a lot of content and then more time of uh, prayer for all of us to engage in. And then as I continue to prep for it, go ahead, Paul, um, uh, my outline kept getting longer and longer and longer. So I'm hoping that, uh, that we can still get to a season of prayer together, um, but I can't promise it. So what I would encourage you to do is take your outlines home and pray through uh, all the scriptures that, uh, that are listed there and also the, uh, the tenets of prayer uh, that we're going to go through today. Uh, this uh, study emanates from two things. One is I, uh, I've modeled prayer for my kids. I've talked about prayer with my kids. I've talked through what prayer is with uh, my girls, but I'm not sure that I've adequately explained it. So I wanted to go through uh, an elementary and rudimentary discussion and, and study of what prayer is, of the role that the sovereignty of God plays in prayer, and then why we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, the second is that uh, I had a discussion with my mom about a week ago uh, that uh, included a lot of these same items. Um, and I, I'm not sure that in, in talking with her uh, and then in thinking through how I grew up listening to prayer and, and listening to pastors talk about prayer, that the subject of prayer is adequately addressed um, in the, the larger Christian church. We do, I think, a, a wonderful job of doing that here. But those are the three things that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what is prayer, we're going to talk about the role of the sovereignty of God in prayer, and then we're going to talk about why we pray in Jesus' name. So first, what is prayer? Uh, the guiding principle there is Jesus knocks, and this is Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So primarily what we see here is that Jesus is the mover, not us. Until he comes to us and knocks, we have no desire to seek him out. How wonderfully the prophet Isaiah communicates this when he says in uh, Isaiah 65, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So the Lord knows before we call that we are going to call. We are going to call on his name um, because he generates that within us. 
to answer the knock, to open our hearts to prayer, is to accept the gift that Christ has already appointed to us. Prayer is our response to Christ's call. Um, There's a wonderful book on prayer for new believers called Prayer by O. Hollisby. And I remember that, like, it's a Norwegian name, but to me it sounds Irish, O'Hollisby, right? Uh, but, but it's not. It's a, it's a uh, uh, first initial and then the last name, Hollisby. He has a wonderful passage analogizing the air which our body requires envelops us on every hand. The air of itself seeks to enter our bodies for this reason, exerts pressure on us. So the air outside of us exerts pressure on us. It is well known that it is more difficult to hold one's breath than it is to breathe. The air which our souls need also envelops all of us at all times on all sides. This is God round us and Christ round us at every hand with his many-sided and all-sufficient grace. It is, it is exerting pressure on us, so it is harder not to pray than it is to pray for the believer. All we need to do is open our hearts. Prayer is the breath of the soul, the organ by which we receive Christ into our parched and withered hearts. The attitude of the heart in prayer is one of sincerity and humility. We understand ourselves to be incapable of coming before the Lord on our own. By this, we understand that supplication, that is presenting our needs to Jesus, is a wonderful and gracious gift, and not one that is only of use by the most holy and righteous among us, but the weak and downtrodden as well. And I consider myself weak and downtrodden for sure. Jesus is glorified in the midst of our needs as we present them to him with the knowledge that we cannot provide what is most fundamental to the well-being of our souls. It's not us who can provide it, right? It's not our strength that can provide it. It is only Jesus. So with that said, Mark 2, it's the first uh, passage, or second passage, I believe, on your handout there. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. This is Jesus, by the way. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The context here is very important. In the preceding verses, Jesus is moving through Galilee, healing the sick, casting out demons, cleansing lepers. So these friends are undoubtedly looking to Christ to heal their paralytic friend. But Jesus peering into the heart of the paralyzed man, hears what our Norwegian friend, Hollisby, calls an unuttered prayer, a louder prayer than that of physical healing. The paralytic says nothing, yet gazes solely upon Jesus and knows through faith that Christ has the power to forgive sins. So much has been said and and many jokes made about uh, unspoken requests. 
And if you are, uh, are a child of the 80s or 90s and went to youth group in the 80s or 90s, you will know all about what I'm saying. There were many, you know, I have five unspoken requests. But in this context, it's an actual unspoken request, one that Christ takes very seriously. Our point here is that we don't have to pray in an overtly articulate way. Not all of us are cut out for erudite, emotionally stirring prayer. But this is not what Jesus seeks from us. He calls upon us to let him into our needs and our weaknesses. So this brings us to the first spiritual condition of prayer. That is helplessness. So prayer and helplessness are essentially intertwined. Isaiah 66 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So I want to address a couple of things within there. So, so humble, knowing our weakness, contrite, that is repentant, and then uh, trembles at the word. So in order to tremble at the word of God, you need to know the word of God. You need to interact with the word of God. And so prayer and the study of scripture or the reading of scripture or the interaction with the word of God are essential as well. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 117, uh, asks, what are the requisites of that prayer which is acceptable to God and which he will hear? The answer, first, that we from the heart pray to the one true God only, who hath manifested himself in his word for all things he hath commanded us to ask of him. Secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery, that so we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of his divine majesty. Thirdly, that we be fully persuaded that he, notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, certainly hear our prayer as he has promised in his word. There's a lot to unpack there, uh, and we'll get through uh, a lot of that as we go along. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. We know, though, that this is not self-derived righteousness. This is not earned righteousness. Uh, rather, it is one alien to us, uh, graciously given by our Father through his Son and administered in his Spirit. This is uh, Hollisby again. Listen, my friend, your helplessness is your best prayer. It calls from your heart to the heart of God with greater effect than all your uttered pleas. He hears it from the very moment that you are seized with helplessness, and he becomes actively engaged at once in hearing and answering the prayer of your helplessness. He hears today as he heard the helpless and wordless prayer of the man sick with the palsy. Through this spirit-led recognition of helplessness, God crushes our self-reliance. We are thereby, at that point, the paralytic himself, drawn powerless into a relationship with our inscrutable holy God. John 15 says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This brings us to the second spiritual condition of prayer, that is faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So you must have faith, and then you must believe in the promises that God has set forth. We recognize through our study above that this condition of seeking is predicated upon Christ knocking and cannot be a product of our own goodness or desire. That faith, then, is our empty-handed assent that God will fulfill all that he has promised, right? Faith, belief in the promise. So that brings us to the question, why helplessness first and faith second? I'm glad you asked. Helplessness is the fundamental condition of fallen human nature. We desire to do things under our own strength and strive and strive and strive at it, but with the scales of unbelief covering our eyes, we fail to recognize the immensity of common grace in our lives and graciousness uh, with which God treats even his enemies. Matthew 5 says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Now, when I was growing up, this uh, verse always was, I think, um, presented in in a a wrong way. Uh, Because when we think of rain here uh, in, uh, you know, comfortable Western uh, aesthetic, we think of rain as gloomy and, and dark. But in actuality, rain is what makes crops grow, right? So the rain is the good thing. And God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So he treats his enemies well. This is common grace. And how did Jesus, agonizing on the cross, spend a portion of his final minutes? In Luke 23, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So the point here is helplessness is at the core of fallen human nature. Faith, then, is what directs our helpless cries toward the only one who can both hear us and help us. James 1 through 6 or excuse me, James 1, 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, so does this mean then that those who doubt cannot pray? The answer is no. Uh, if, is the faith that we speak of in, in that passage perfect, without reservation, without doubt? Uh, Luke 18, um, 35 gives us a, an insight into this. As he draws, or as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside bagging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. This is, in its essence, a prayer spoken aloud to the one who can answer it. It is, by its essence, not a perfect faith, but it is, in and of itself, the essence of faith. That is, coming to Christ empty-handed and presenting your needs, spiritual, emotional, and physical. This is what Hollisby refers to as the simple but unmistakable mark of a living faith. So let's read again the passage from James in light of this and another passage, that is Mark 9, 23. A father brings his son possessed by a spirit for healing. And he says, Jesus, if, if you can do this, uh, please heal my son. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. And one of my favorite things in the Gospel of Mark um, is that word immediately. Um, and I don't mean to put the pastor on the spot, but do you know what that is in the Greek? Immediately. immediately. <laughs> I, 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 I would really like to know, so I'm going to ask you afterwards to, to help me out with that. Um, but I just love the, the immediacy with which Mark uh, talks about the events that happen. Uh, and this especially, this is a, uh, a cry from a humble, contrite father, a desperate father, uh, grasping as, you as he would at the promises of God. His essence is one of faith, not one of unbelief, and he receives because he believes in spite of his doubts. Our faith cannot help Jesus fulfill... Um, and answer our prayers. It is not a draw by which Christ becomes interested in our lives and needs. He doesn't need any assistance with this. Table Talk Magazine writes, the dependence that God demands confesses that the Lord will hear and answer our prayer according to his will, not because of something good in us, but because we are in Christ. <clears throat> Pardon me. And because Christ promises to intercede for us and with us by his Spirit, depending on Jesus and no other, we have a firm foundation on which to stand when we offer our concerns to the Lord. We, therefore, have sufficient faith to come to Jesus in prayer, to leave those doubts with him as we trust in his promises and, and his promises uh, specifically to complete that good work uh, within us of which prayer is a necessary component. Brings us to our second point, uh, the prayer and the sovereignty of God. So James 1, 17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In him, there is no shadow of turning. His counsel is from everlasting. He has no plan B. Plan B's are contingencies. But though God knows all contingencies, he himself knows nothing contingently. Does prayer change God's mind? No. That's the answer. No. This is a weak and persuadable God, is the God whose mind can be changed, not the sovereign God of the universe 
who speaks all things into existence. This is a contingent God who is reliant on information that we provide. R.C. Sproul suggests that we can answer the que- ask the question rather in a slightly different way. Does prayer change things? Yes. James tells us that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Prayer, brothers and sisters, is effectual. Prayer is in the spirit is the petition of the elect, those for whom God sent his son. Sproul exegetes, that which avails much is never futile. What does prayer change, though? If prayer changes things, what are those things? In the first place, our prayer changes us. The purpose of prayer is not to change God. He doesn't change because he doesn't need changing. But we do. Our time with God benefits our edification. Sproul again. Prayer is one of the great privileges given to us along with our justification. A consequence of our justification is that we have access to God. We've been adopted into his family and given the right to address him as father. The author of Hebrews encourages us to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite Baptist, aside from Keith Turner, uh, says the best praying man is the man who is most believingly familiar with the promises of God. After all, prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying to him, do as thou hast said. Prayer is the promise utilized. A prayer which is not based on a promise has no true foundation. In order to pray with that foundation, we must know the promises of God. And those are contained for us only in Scripture. And we are all aware that for people of faith, through time in the Word of God and time with the Word, the Logos of God, we cannot help but be changed. Here is where we must differentiate then between primary and secondary causality. God's sustaining providence is our power to live, to move, to breathe, to exist. He has set into motion the stars and the planet in their courses, and without his maintenance, the very fabric of the universe would unravel. A comedian called Pete Holmes, if you're familiar, has a bit where he unwittingly addresses this. I'm paraphrasing. Existence, he says, makes no sense. This lectern is made of molecules. The floor is made of molecules. The air between us is made of molecules. I am made of molecules. And those molecules somehow got together and declared that I'm Dave. Now, science can only explain so much. For instance, why do the molecules in my hand pass through the air, which is made of molecules, but not through the lectern? Science has no idea. If you ask them, they say they don't know. Um, To the comedian, this makes no sense. But it makes perfect sense to us when considered along with God's sustenance. I think I'm getting, am I getting a, do we know why? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wipe that point off the table. Secondary causality is the only power we have. And this power relies on God for his efficacy. Prayer is one of the ordinary means God uses um, 
to bring about whatsoever he ordains. God ordains both the ends and the means by which the end is accomplished. This is Sproul again. He has chosen to work through our prayers. He empowers our prayers so that we, after we pray, we can step back and watch him unleash his power in and through our prayers. We pray expectantly and confidently, not in spite of the sovereignty of God, but because of it. What would be a waste of time and breath would be praying to a God who is not sovereign. Again, this is, goes back to that God who is weak and, and mutable and changeable. Why in the world would we pray to such a God? He has no power to change anything. He has no power to do anything. We pray to a sovereign God because that sovereign God has the power to move. That brings us to our third point. Why, then, do we pray in Jesus' name? John 16, 23 and 24 say, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, and you will receive that your joy, ask and you will receive, rather, that your joy may be full. Jesus here is preparing his followers for a time when we are without Christ on earth. Rather, the ascension of the Son paves the way for the Holy Spirit to rest on all believers, revealing truth. For us, that truth is contained in the scriptures, which echoes above conforming our um, will to reflect those promises of God that we find in the scriptures. So, second is petitioning the Father in the name of the Son. Jesus and the Father have a spirit of full agreement. In speaking to the elect, John 10 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Christ's will is always in accord with the Father. And that allows us then to implore the Father boldly. That boldness, again, as we've seen earlier, emanates not from within us as we... Um, uh, pray from a state of helplessness, but rather it comes from the Spirit of God himself. Romans eight twenty six and 27 say, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So that intercessory prayer, Mark, Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of an easy compromise question for some people, right? Mm. Because it's worship. Yes. It's worship to God. Not only that, but he wants that worship to be one of the you know, really kind of recurring points of our oh. Well, it's perfect because that's exactly what I was going to ask, especially of those who, um, you know, uh, have uh, been believers of uh, a, a good length and who have a robust prayer life. I wanted some feedback and, and those kinds of things. And that's perfect that, uh, you know, that uh, prayer is in and of its essence worship um, and that is worshipful, worshipful to pray. And not only that, but Jesus is glorified in addressing our needs and knowing our needs and uh, us realizing and recognizing our helplessness, he is glorified, his name is glorified when we pray in his name. Yeah, great point, Mark. Thank you. Um, 
So the intercessory of, of prayer of Christ on our behalf in the presence of the Father is why we joyfully cry out in Jesus' precious name. Um, I end, look at that, I'm on time, I like it, uh, with um, Hebrews 4. Uh, we've alluded to it earlier, uh, but it is the most compelling reason, to, I, I believe, to pray in the name of Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And to confess, and to recognize the promises of God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Okay. So here is us in our helplessness. Here is Christ, who is the eternal second person of the Trinity, who's come down to earth, has uh, become one with man, and that hypostatic union lasts forever. Uh, this is God with man forever, the God-man forever. I cannot stress that enough. I've said it four times, right? Uh, this is a God who can sympathize with our weaknesses, not that changeable, mutable, fickle God, um, nor that holy other God, uh, as um, uh, Islam is uh, apt to say, like, God is holy other. He doesn't understand anything about what happens down here. This is a God who can sympathize with our weaknesses, knows us in our helplessness, but who in every respect has, as, as tempted as we are, uh, yet without sin, let us then with confidence, and that confidence not emanating from within ourselves, right, but it is alien to us and comes from uh, God and the regeneration of our souls, uh, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Again, the neediness, the helplessness, the weakness, the, these are the things that we bring to God. We do not bring anything that can help him out. Nor is it the fa that, that faith, that uh, our great faith, which draws him near, rather, that we approach with empty hands that have needs and wants and weaknesses and doubts. We draw near to the throne of God, not through our strength, but in our weakness by the calling of him who sympathizes with our weakness. How can we not therefore pray in the name of the one who came to be tempted on our behalf and yet did not succumb? I love C.S. Lewis talking about walking against the wind, right? So temptation in life is walking into the wind, and it is a great and powerful wind. And every once in a while, it's so strong we lay down. Can you imagine then the exhaustion with which the human Christ, the human Jesus, walking against that wind for all his life and never laying down? So he is the one who knows exhaustion and temptation so much better than we do because he never laid down, never gave into it always walked into the wind. That spotless lamb who ultimately and fully paid the price for our rebellion and yet who still loves us. He knows you. He knows me. And yet still loves me. How can we not pray in his name? Amen. That was it. So what I'd like us to do now um, is a 